Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Hospital Club and to this discussion on the importance of books and writing, uh, pre-Hay uh, Festival warm-up. My name is Richard Kilgariff. I work here at the Hospital Club, so... If you need to know anything about what we do here, um, I'm around uh, for you to chat to. In particular, I've left out some brochures uh, about our Creators in Residence program, which is always on the lookout for contributors and mentors while we back a group of young um, emerging writers and performers. Um, a couple of housekeeping points. The Wi-Fi password is Twinkle. Don't ask me why. Um, there's a hashtag associated with this event if you want to be tweeting away. I believe it is hashtag EI Club. Thank you. Um, some other housekeeping notes. In the um, very uh, unlikely event that one of the panelists spontaneously combusts, um, there are two fire exits, one by the uh, toilet and one just to the left of the bar. So um, I'd like to hand you over now to Julia, Julia Hobsbawne, and the leader of uh, Editorial Intelligence. Enjoy yourselves. Thank you. Welcome, good morning. Um, I don't know if, if we can do one-upmanship on who got up early, but I think Peter Florence getting up at quarter to four to get the 5.32 from Newport is definitely ahead at this point in time. Uh, as ever, we're really grateful to the hospital for hosting this event. Part of, I think, the appeal of the EI Club is you get to come to really swanky places and have good coffee and croissants before you hear stimulating conversation, which in essence is what we hope to provide. Uh, it's very good to have an association with Hay. I have a personal association with Hay, um, and EI is going to be doing some newspaper reviews there. But for those of you that don't make it this time to the Brecon Beacons, we brought a bit of Hay to London. Peter's going to introduce his panel. You can tell from the smattering of very senior people from publishing in the audience just how good the panel is, because they don't, you know, they're so jaded with all their spangly authors and writers that they normally never get up to hear anybody else. Uh, Peter Florence is a bit of a legend, a major legend, really. Um, I'm not going to spare his blushes to say that what he's done is, is really put not just the book festival, but arguably the renaissance of the festival on the map. Hay is now a global phenomenon, and at its centre is the question of the book and writers. And so without further ado, apart from to say it's on the record, don't be shy, speak your mind, but it will be immortalised on iTunes. Peter Florence. Uh, Julia, thank you very much. Um, can I just say quarter to four, piece of piss for anyone who's got four kids, as I think you know. <laughs> um, uh, this is a, an extraordinarily august panel. I think you know who a lot of them are. Uh, we're going to not read you out very tiresome biographies, all of which are largely fictional. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to invite each of them to talk for a couple of minutes just to say how and why it is that each of us are in this changing, enormous publishing creative trade. And I'm going to start with Johnny Geller, who is, in shorthand, an Uber agent with an incredibly smart client list with prize winners and million sellers, and he's at the top of his game. Johnny. Thank you. Um, so uh, I was asked to say something personal about why I became a literary agent. Um, 
And it's a very tough uh, thing to answer because, uh, to be honest, I'd never heard of literary agents or knew what they did, and some may argue I still don't know what they do. But uh, I think when I was at university or trained as an actor, it wasn't part of uh, really what I wanted to do. But I stumbled into it, and I, and I was thinking, actually, probably the reason, and this is a slightly embarrassing story, so I hope you'll enjoy it, the reason I, I now rationalise why I love my job goes back to when I was at university, and I was one of those sort of classic, really annoying, pretentious English students who believed that you had to have the complete list of Picador classics to be interesting. And I would go and buy them all. And do you remember, I'm sure some of you will remember that Picador really controlled modern contemporary fiction. And, and they had all these beautiful white spines and great illustrations. And, and, and everyone from Marquez to uh, David Grossman, from, you know, from Calvino to, anyway, it was, it, to McEwen. It had everybody. And so you had to sort of collect them, as I did. And I remember standing in the Warwick University bookshop, flicking through 100 Years of Solitude, thinking, I might buy this. And on the back, <laughs> it sort of said, this book will change your life, W.L. Webb, The Guardian. And I remember sort of sniggering, thinking that's ridiculous, and buying it. And uh, incidentally, it did actually change my life. That's the weird thing. At the end of that book... I don't know whether you'll remember, is, is one of the best endings of any book I've ever read. It literally escapes from your hand. And, and that feeling I've sort of tried to recapture in my job. But anyway, the point of the story is that what my thought was when I was looking through this book was if this wasn't Picador with the beautiful white spine and the illustrations, if this didn't say this book will change your life, would I know? And I really felt that I was just maybe a fake and that all these books that I was reading, I had no idea whether any good or not. And that sort of slightly plagued me. And I think, though, now, when I look back and I, I, I do my job, I think of all these manuscripts I'm reading, and each one, they're challenging me. Each one, they're saying, do you really know if I'm any good? And I'm sort of responding to it, and then I'm calling someone like Alexandra up and saying, this book will change your life. And, she, and she's either going to say, well, you know, he's an idiot, he's off, he's off his uh, trolley, or, wow, it really is a good book. And that's really what my job is. It's discovery. And that's what the most amazing part of going to work. And it could happen this morning when I go in. That it's not just discovery of the new, uh, which obviously is addictive, uh, but it's the discovery of writers that I already represent who, who tell me something new. And I think it just goes back to that fear of being a fake that drives me. Um, and uh, that's what I, why I became a literary agent. Alexandra Pringle is the uh, editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury and... Uh, has uh, worked Hamish Hamilton, worked Virago, she was herself an agent for a while, and now runs one of the smartest fiction lists anywhere in London. Hello. Well, I'm going to take you back um, to the 1950s and to a very small, skinny girl, and that was me, at school. And um, I couldn't read. I, was, uh, I just didn't want to learn to read. I was fantastically slow. And my parents, who were both teachers, were very concerned about this. And um, I would sit at home with my mother and say, no, I don't want to read. I don't want to read. So I was probably about seven when it finally clicked. And I was the last person in my class to learn to read. And then was the great transformation of my life. And that was it. And I was down the Chelsea Library every week, um, taking out books that the librarians would say, this is far too old for you. And I'd say, but I still want to read it. And it was this thing of disappearing into this magical, extraordinary world. 
And I wasn't disappearing into it because I was unhappy. I came from a very, very happy background with a very close family. But it was the wonder of it. And I couldn't believe that it had taken me so long to discover this secret. The problem about it was that it stopped me working because why bother to do anything boring like mathematics when you can be reading a novel? So there I was doing my O-levels, um, pretending that I was working with my books on my desk, and underneath the desk on my lap was a novel. So what I was doing without knowing it was preparing myself for the rest of my life. It also meant that I was a fantastic academic failure, and I scarcely managed to get any um, O-levels or A-levels worth talking about. I didn't even get an interview to go to university because all I had been doing is reading. And the biggest bit of my reading, I think, began when I was 11, and my father gave me Pride and Prejudice to read, and I thought it was the most romantic and wonderful novel, and I reread it every year for about six years. He also gave me Thomas Hardy, particularly the minor Thomas Hardy, like The Hand of Ethelberta, I got very keen on. And my mother gave me Rosamund Lehman, The Dusty Answer, to read when I was 14, and said this book changed my life, and it changed, changed my life too. And then also discovering modern fiction, and that was such an exciting thing. So the classics were wonderful, but modern fiction was something else. And that was reading Margaret Drabble's first novel, reading um, and realizing that you could associate with something, that you were reading something which was about your life, that your life was relevant. So there was Margaret Drabble and Beryl Bainbridge and Doris Lessing and Iris Murdoch, Flight from the Enchanter with the girl swinging from the chandelier. The joys that were to be had in all these books, and meanwhile, complete academic failure. So I ended up going to a tech. It wasn't even a poly. It was so low-ranking. Um, and uh, to do a secretarial course. And then I discovered that you could do degrees, and they took me on. And at the end of that time, one of my tutors was a man called Richard Burns, and he started the first Cambridge Poetry Festival. And I got involved in organizing that, just helping out and being around. And I remember going home to my family that holiday, and my brother saying, well, maybe you've got a gift for poetry. And I said, no, I've got a gift for poets. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I realized that I had a way of communicating with writers, that they were incredibly exciting for me, that this world was my world, um, and that was what I wanted to do. And um, of course, I had absolutely no qualifications. I had a rather dreary degree from a rather lovely tech, and um, went off to teach in Italy for a year, came back, and worked on an art magazine, and then got taken on as the slave at Virago or the um, ship worker, as we called it. And I worked for Carmen Khalil, which was a pretty frightening thing to do. And that was the beginning of it all. And it's been, in a way, very complicated and very simple, because there's only really ever been one thing I've ever wanted to do. Gosh, spectacularly beautiful woman has a way of relating to poets. Who'd have thought? <laughs> um, I, I, I can date pretty much exactly to the 14th of November, 1987, the day that I met Polly Sampson. Um, which is etched in my mind for many reasons, principally because she was the first person in publishing who ever agreed to talk to me. Um, she is uh, a novelist, a lyric writer. She is a spectacular master of the particular form of the short story, and Perfect Lives is now out. Polly. Um, thanks, Peter. Um, my story, early story, chimes almost exactly with Alexandra's um, 
and I was told to make this quite personal, so I'm going to talk about my grandmother. Um, eventually, either I chucked or got chucked by school, and I was never quite sure which way around it was. And um, I was told that my future was going to be stacking shelves. Um, but luckily, my grandmother had instilled in me a love of books. She was Jewish, made a widow by Hitler, and although she got her four small children out of Germany on the Kindertransport in 1938, she herself didn't leave until May 1939, which might seem an odd thing to do, and no one has ever really explained what happened in the interim. Um, but I've always suspected that it, she stayed behind because she wanted to get her library out, um, which she did, along with my father's bicycle with its balloon tires. <laughs> um, reunited with her books in London, um, but never again as a proper family under one roof with her children, she ran the German section of the National Central Library until she was well into her 80s. Um, later, she became blind, and at that point, because she couldn't read, she decided that it was, that was the moment to die, although everything else worked. Um, I grew up in Cornwall, and um, perhaps believing that the Puffing Club hadn't extended its membership that far south, my lovely grandmother stayed in touch by sending me perfectly chosen books but in return for a review of whatever she'd sent me before, which was incredibly clever. Um, I was prolific, and I wish I was as prolific now as I was then. Um, soon I was flooding not only my grandmother, but also Biddy Baxter um, of Blue Peter, um, with reviews and poems and stories. Um, and when I eventually flunked school and turned up on her doorstep, um, not, not Biddy Baxter's, my grandmother's, um, <laughs> with my suitcase and no qualifications, I knew that the only way to appease her was to get a job with books. And somehow, and I think probably only because I was well-read, because I had no qualifications, um, that's what happened. Um, I dread to think what would have happened without books. I was 18 and publishing was my university. Eventually, I was lucky enough to find myself under the tutelage of the best professor in the industry. The legendary publisher, Tom Mashler, was an inspiration. He published almost all of my favourite writers, which was actually how I got the job, because the interview with Tom consisted of, who do you like to read? And I listed a few people off the top of my head. He said, great, I published them all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've got it. And so Chatwin, Amos, Lessing, McEwen, Gordmer, that's just name five of them. He published 100 Years of Solitude. I mean, he just, you know, he wasn't someone who, who would say to you, this book will change your life. He would run up to you and say, this book will change the world, and nothing else would do. And it was all about books then. Um, it wasn't really about marketing. I still think of Tom and his maniac eyes scattering manuscripts in his wake. I urge you to read this. And woe betide anyone who by the next morning hadn't read this manuscript. Um, and luckily, I didn't need a lot of sleep. It wasn't only that he had great taste in writing um, and writers. Um, his enthusiasm was infectious. I think there are very few Toms now. I mean, Alexandra is an example of someone who, you know, I get jiffy bags from Alexandra, and when I open them, I just know that she just is so delighted by the book that she's sending me. Um, Jamie Bing is another person who springs to mind. You know, you see Jamie walking along with his haversack, and you just know that he is going to thrust a book into your hands, and I think that's where it starts. Um, it was while I was working at Jonathan Cape that I went to my very first Hay on Wye festival, accompanying an author. 
It was in a tent, I think, in the pub car park. Um, and having been at it, it's a boast, a bit like having been at the first Glastonbury, um, but without the hallucinating dairy herd. Um, in, in fact, being here today as part of this discussion, I'm wearing my fifth Hay Festival hat. My next proper job after Cape was at the Sunday Times, and for two or three years, while they were sponsoring the Hay Festival, I drew the long straw and got to write it up for the paper. I've also been as a punter, but my loveliest hat is the one I've worn as an author, and I'm very much looking forward to donning it again later this month. Thank you. Um, Sarah Hunter uh, was formerly Tony Blair's uh, culture advisor. She's worked in the media and is now uh, at Google, who may or may not be the future of our industry. Sarah. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, I'm a slight outlier here because I, I don't actually work in the publishing or, or writing industry. Um, but I, my, my background, is, as Peter said, is, is politics. Um, I, did, I, I did actually harbour an ambition to be an author as a teenager, but I, I realised uh, I probably wasn't brave enough and therefore getting into politics was a lot easier, which does tell you something about uh, <laughs> the quality of people in politics, maybe. But... Um, uh, in, in, in my political career, I basically worked across all cultural sectors. So I uh, specialised in broadcasting, but I've since then worked across uh, music, across film, across the publishing industry. And now at Google, in a very similar role, we, we sort of sit across all different cultural sectors. Um, and I guess there's two things that I would say are, are sort of particularly interesting or distinctive about, about this sector from, from my perspective. Uh, one is that it's incredibly emotionally laden. Uh, the first ever event I spoke to uh, on, on books, an author in the audience um, cried, uh, actually about a product that Google had brought out, which was particularly difficult for me to deal with. But it, it's never happened to me in any other policy debate where, where someone in the audience has felt so passionately about their work that they actually were moved to tears by it. Um, and I think for a, a company like us, who, who treats all content as sort of just content, I think it was a really salutary experience. Um, the second thing that I think is, is particularly interesting is that nowadays we talk about the internet in terms of sort of, you know, the cool stuff, which is Facebook or, or YouTube or, you know, content, content that is communicative or, or, or audiovisual. But, but we mustn't forget that actually the very basis of the internet is, is words. Um, it's why Google's founders went into the internet in the first place, the excitement about making information available to everyone. Uh, and the potential that the internet provides for for writers and for, for books is, more, I think, more significant than any other type of content. You know, you have potentially a limitless uh, amount of bookshelf space for, for, for authors to constantly have their books available, not just for the, you know, couple of weeks that, that uh, Waterstones put it in the front window. Um, but also that, that, that enormous amount of bookshelf is available in every single home. And, you know, we worry about our children and, and the extent to which they use the Internet for, for you know, social networking. In truth... The thing that children most use the internet for is doing research for their homework, um, a much less uh, scary and a much more uh, high-minded pursuit than, than maybe some of us parents uh, fear. So I think the exciting uh, aspects of, of the internet are there for uh, the writing book world to take more than any other sector. So uh, despite the fact I often come on these panels to be, to be the bad guy and to be shouted at, I actually think uh, on this one I might, I might be agreed with, maybe. <laughs> Sarah, thank you. Um, David Nichols is an incredibly successful screenwriter, a novelist, whose uh, one day has been the book of the last 18 months that seems to have caught the zeitgeist and the spirit and, 
a huge number, millions of readers all around the world. David. Um, like uh, other people on this panel, I, I sort of feel as if I should start in, in childhood, really. I was uh, an obsessive reader as a kid. Uh, the, the two major influences, I think, on my childhood were, were not really school, but the public library system and the BBC. Uh, I was a real... Uh, 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 in the library pretty much five days a week, sitting on the floor, reading uh, non-fiction, fiction, just sort of absorbing as much as I, I could. I mean, I was quite a kind of swatty kid anyway, but, but uh, I didn't really make a distinction between fiction and non-fiction. Um, and I think I sort of thought of authors as, as rather otherworldly. It seems such an extraordinary achievement to, to, to publish any, any kind of book. Um, as I went through schooling, I kind of was gradually drawn away from science towards, towards English literature and, and also acting. Um, I think being so uh, obsessed with stories and characters, uh, acting was really the only outlet to, 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 uh, to, to be creative in that field. Um, so I, I did a lot of acting at school and, and then at college and then at university. And I was a terrible, terrible actor. Uh, I, I know I always bang on about this in, in, uh, in interviews, but I really was a very bad actor. But I, I just loved that opportunity to explore character and story. And the one thing that never really occurred to me was that it was possible to put this on paper, whether in the form of a script or, uh, or a piece of fiction, and, and do that rather than perform. Um, actually writing as an individual, actually sitting in a room by yourself and writing a play or a story at university was, was almost rather frowned upon. It was all about devising and group, group, group rehearsals and group devising, which I don't think ever produced anything of any quality whatsoever, certainly nothing that I was in. But I didn't do any writing at university except for sort of sketches and skits and little bits of stand-up. Uh, and through most of my 20s, worked as an actor and, again, never really thought about putting words on the page in any form. Um, because I was unemployed so much, I used to read a lot of scripts uh, for theatre companies and for film companies and gradually had a sense that, that, that I, I knew how they were made. I could, I could see what was good and what was bad and what worked and what didn't work. And so, encouraged by friends, started to write a little myself. Um, but... The, the big change, career change for me, was to finally, finally give up acting and to become a script editor and to, to work editorially on, on, on scripts for radio and then television. Um, and it wasn't actually until, until I was 29 that I started to actually put words on the page by myself with my name attached and call it my, my writing. Um, so uh, my younger self, the idea of, of becoming a writer, of making a living of it, would seem in, seemed entirely fanciful and improbable. Uh, and if you'd given my 15-year-old self an envelope with, you know, my future written on it, I, I wouldn't have, have believed it. But um, I'm very lucky to have found that vocation uh, later in life. Really what happened in short was that I, I worked for a while as a scriptwriter in television, which, which, which was both thrilling and brutal and terrifying and uh, combative and, and, and a very not really something that I felt entirely comfortable with. And I, I took a break from that and, and just started to make notes on a possible monologue, a possible script, and found myself writing in prose and actually found myself writing chapters of a book, which were uh, I, I showed to a friend who then discreetly, uh, my friend without my permission, passed on to Johnny Geller, and that became my first book, Start of a Ten. So it, 
they would they never seemed a, a kind of career route into into writing uh, and I'm extremely lucky to have sort of stumbled and uh, through various coincidences and accidents and the encouragement of friends found myself writing for a living. David, thank you very much. I, I, I want to come on to business and the media that stories are told in, but just before doing that, can I pick up on the, the life-changing aspect that you've all touched on in some way or other? It seems to me that it's fundamentally different to social networking or gaming or films or even the televisual experience that you have as a child. Is the revolution that literature can give you as a, an individuated reader, how much of that is absolutely about the freedom of, of words and the amount of imagination that it demands from the reader, Johnny? Um, I think it's a direct relationship, isn't it? You read a book and you don't have an author's voice in your head, you have your voice and you relate to that story in your own way and people relate, we can all read the same book in this room and all have completely different views about what book changed my life. As it happens, I reread A Hundred Years of Solitude in my late 20s and I didn't like it as much. But in a way that doesn't matter. The point is at that moment in time that book meant something to me. And that's the wonderful thing about writing. I mean, I personally learn my nonfiction through my fiction. I read lots of nonfiction for my job, and I enjoy their work. But, you know, nothing will tell me more about Indira Gandhi's India than a fine balance, you know. Or, to me, that's the way I relate to world events. Maybe narrow, but that's the relationship I can have with a book, which you don't get with... You may get with movies and The Wire, but nothing. Not a lot else. Alexandra, could you get the same satisfaction, given that so much of your job is about taste and encouragement of production. Could you get the same amount of satisfaction as, as a film producer? Um, I, I think it, I, I don't know enough about film production, to be, to be frank, but I think that what the satisfaction I get is it's a very personal thing. I, think the, I, I know that actually from actors like Esther Freud when she stopped acting and started writing that she felt that she had suddenly got the power in her own hands that rather than being um, pushed around by other people that suddenly it was her thing and it was very intimate. And I think as a publisher it's also very intimate because your relationship with the books, with the text, and with the authors is a, is a very private and intimate one, and then your job is to take it out into the world, and that's the exciting thing, that you can, if you get it right, both within your company and then outside, create a kind of alchemy. And I think that's particularly so of fiction rather than non-fiction. Non-fiction is an easier beast to deal with, but fiction, it's like with Tom Mashler, it's it's about how you express it, and um, I think it would be hard to do that as a film producer. I think you have a different kind of mind, and I think, for me, the films I love the most are films when, at the end of it, I think, that's just like reading a good novel. <laughs> <laughs> David, how do you feel about the two different lives of the book and the film, Start of a Ten? Um, well, uh, I, there's, no, uh, there's no role in cinema that's analogous to that of the author. Um, you, uh, as a screenwriter, you come pretty far down the list, and even the director isn't an authorial voice. You have so many financial pressures and the executives and the abilities of the actor and the casting prerogatives. You know, there are so many factors. It's much more uh, collaborative. I mean, I, I, love, I love film. I love working in film, but I, I, it is... Uh, I find that when, you, when you're writing a book, it's just you, and you have complete control. And the, there are external considerations to do with cover design and marketing and th those things where you actually find yourself 
you know, leaving the house and talking to other people. But film is, film is, uh, film is, is much more collaborative and combative. And uh, uh, I, I, I always, in my, in my mind, the idea of sitting, you know, with a blank page and a pen and a sunny room and peace and quiet seems idyllic and infinitely preferable to, to filmmaking until you sit down and try and do it and <laughs> realize that that's its own, its own kind of hell. <laughs> Polly, you have uh, uh, ended up, not so ended up sounds awfully <laughs> final, but uh, you, you also sit through your marriage to David Gilmore and your collaboration with him um, at the sort of uh, monarchy level of, of rock and roll and music, which, 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 seem, which seems to operate in a very different way in terms of one's initial response to it and the depth of the relationship. Could you, did you, when you were a child, have the same relationship with music as you do, did with literature? No, a completely different relationship. Um, music just made me cry, <laughs> and, and literature gave me an escape and a great happiness. I mean, I'm, music is more of an emotional um, vehicle, I think, and... Um, and I don't think you... I, I don't escape into music. I don't become someone else when I'm listening to music. Music kind of strums at the things that I'm thinking about. It doesn't take me away from them. And it's reading that puts you into another person's skin. Um, and I was sort of thinking about that the other day and about how sad it will be when the inevitable happens and books become a sort of multimedia thing where you will be reading Alice in Wonderland and you will click on the white rabbit and up will pop someone's version of the white rabbit and it will no longer be a creative experience where it is your world, it will become this generic Disney world and, um, and it won't be, a, you know, no one will be relying on their own imagination anymore and um, Sarah, it doesn't have to be like no, although I'm kind of with, funnily enough, I'm kind of with Polly on this. I, I have a, a five-year-old, and, and they are very into e-books and turning the page. And my mum's a teacher, and she's like, it's great, you, you know, he's going to learn to read. And I'm like, yeah, I've just, I, you're missing something. There is something that's, that's going to go. And actually, I have a friend who's a poet who, I thought when I told her I, I was going to work for Google, she'd be horrified. She said, no, how exciting. She said, I never made any money through traditional publishing. My, now I might actually get an audience, and, you know, people might actually hear my poems. And, and her strategy is... She reads poems on YouTube, and she, she puts images to them, and she, and she, she sees herself as a, as a creator, not just of words, but of, of imagery and music, and, and it's a very different creative product at the end, but I, I'm kind of with you. You lose something as, as the audience, which is, is what it says, what enables you to think about, rather than what the author wants you to think about. I think that's about children's books in particular, and because those are the ones where you're going to have that interactive thing with pictures popping up. I think that electronic reading for grown-up books is is the same thing. I don't think it's any different. And the way you relate to them, I mean, actually, one day, I think it's one of the, for me, one of the most fascinating books I've read in a long time because, first of all, you have to read it compulsively and you get, you know, your husband and your son and everyone to read it. But then you have to have these discussions about the characters. And I, um, just after I'd read it, I was with somebody who's a very distinguished feminist historian 
who is um, even a bit older than me, and she said, the, the, what, whatever, what's the name of the central character, the woman? Emma. Uh, Emma. She said, oh, she's so annoying because she's... And I said, but don't you get it? She doesn't understand what she looks like. And we knew this person was in our room, in the room with us, and we had this huge discussion, and I think... That will never stop, you know, that you're relating to people in different ways. And this, you know, and she was different for me from, from my friend. And, you know, so she has all these different lives, just as human beings are. You know, we all relate to each other differently. And that's never going to change. I think I love ebooks. I but think they're marvelous. Do you think that you'd be maybe clicking on a piece of music and then suddenly you'd be reading your book and the but music would play? But that would be so no, no, awful. No, <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think the interactive thing. Yeah. But I don't think, I think that just adds stuff to other people and I think it is worrying for children because you really want them to bring their imagination yes. but I just think that any different way that people can read any which way is great and I was very excited when I gave my husband an iPad and oh, I was looking at the times and I realized that you could just buy a book you read a review and you can buy a book yeah. just like that book this is the yeah. answer yeah. this is so great you know yeah. So instant gratification. Johnny, how much is that going to change? I mean, you presumably make millions of pounds a year, he said casually, but not inaccurately, um, uh, for your clients um, and, and from them. Uh, how, um, how, and I realize that this is all in flux, and I realize the news of Ed Victor's publishing agency adventure last year, is, last night, is going to change things. But how do you imagine, you at the top of your trade, that this digital revolution will impact both here with a book-buying public and also, I think more interestingly perhaps, in a wider world where books are not so available? How will it impact on freedoms of speech and freedoms of imagination where censorship and repression are more extreme? Um, I think availability is a good thing, although uh, what Sarah was saying about the wonders of Google making everything available, sometimes too much availability gives you no choice. You know, you, everyone needs filters. They still will need publishers, and you still need some kind of community saying, this book is worth reading above everything else, whether that's a retailer or a Richard and Judy or a Booker Prize. It doesn't matter. We still need that basic chain. I think every single element of publishing is going to change in the next 18 months, to be honest. Um, and my job as an agent... Uh, is definitely going to change because the process from author to publisher to retailer to consumer, which has been intact for a long, long time, is being challenged. Um, and I actually think it's being challenged in a lot of positive ways um, because ebooks, although it's a different business model, and that is the thing that's really affecting everybody, the pie has got smaller, is a growing. Uh, incredible industry. I mean, this morning there was a piece about Amazon is being uh, projected to have $5 billion sales in ebooks and Kindle alone. So uh, that's sort of amazing. Um, and in America, the revolution is happening now. In the UK, it hasn't quite happened. It's sort of between 5 and 10% at most. And 10% is at its very high, uh, very uh, biggest uh, amount. Whereas in America, you can have for non genre, I mean, I would have expected thrillers to be. 25 to 40%, but uh, literary novels and non-genre novels are also the ratio between the hardback and paperback and the e-book is, is around 20 to 40%. That's a huge amount of books. But the great thing is, as opposed to the music industry, is this is a new uh, business. It's a new business that's emerging. It's a there's a dynamism 
among it. Whereas what all the music industry had was catastrophic decline with a value. So there's a huge amount of positives um, attached to it. I think the publishing community is in panic, and I think a lot of authors are panicking because they're not quite understanding it. And that's fair enough, and I think that's fine to panic. But we will easily come out of this because it goes back to the very beginning of the conversation. We all love stories, and stories are the basis of everything. Can I just pick up? I live in Hay on Wye, which is a tiny town in the middle of Wales. It's got 1,300 people and 42 bookshops. And in those bookshops, which are largely second-hand bookshops, you can buy any number of thrillers, crime novels, romances. You can't buy very much fiction, literary fiction, because those tend to be, Alexandra, the books that people want to keep. Mm. I mean, once you've worked out what happens at the end of a James Patterson novel... You don't want it. Well, no, you can give it to somebody else, or you can sell it, or you can do it. But there's something about the durability of a story that changes your life or touches mm. your heart that makes you... It gives you a physical relationship with, with the, with the artefact, isn't there? Yes, but I, I, what I think is going to happen is that, um, and it's a bit like the music industry, is that people will often read the book first electronically, and then if they love it, if it's a book that changes their life, they will want to buy it. And they'll want to buy probably not a paperback, but quite a high-end, beautiful hardback. So I think that there'll be more variety... Um, of ways that you can read and own a book, and that there'll be more beautiful special editions of hardbacks, as well as the availability of e-books. I think the impact is going to be on, on paperbacks. And frankly, paperbacks on the whole are not such lovely things. And when you get to my age, you don't want to own too many more books because your, your place is full of them, and plus your eyesight's going, so it's really nice to be able to have larger types. So, you know, I think everybody thought that it would be young people who grew up on computers who'd like e-books, and I don't think so. I think young people want to express their identity, just like Johnny did at university, through the books they're seen to read and to have in their homes. And the look of them, and those are paperbacks, and the jackets, and the, the whole air of them is part of your identity. But when you're older, you're in a whole different space. So I, I just, I see it all as being about variety. Can I just say, there is one other aspect, that uh, Kindle hasn't worked out how you can give it as a gift, a book. And, and if 50% of the book trade is between November and December, it's a huge part of the gift market. So what do you do? It, you know, that's a huge question mark and hasn't been solved. So that, that will probably argue for books being in print form for a long, long time. There's an element to this which is, is rather like uh, well-balanced social democrats in, in Britain arguing about AV or first-past-the-post when people in Bahrain are worrying about whether or not they're going to determine their lives. Um, is there uh, an element, Sarah, that we're maybe missing here, that the real significance of e-books and the revolution and even the, the Google uh, dissemination of, of books is actually about spreading those ideas of enlightenment and enfranchisement and liberation and empowerment to places where books just aren't available in any format. And that the fact you can log on in the next 10 years across China and read Crime and Punishment will be a bigger deal than whether or not David sells a million in Kindle or in paper. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's definitely... Way we, I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question from a Google perspective. I think that's, that's a resounding yes. Um, 
I mean, I think when, you know, going back to the very beginning of the conversation about, you know, how books can be transformative of the world, they can in lovely places like this where we all have public libraries and where we all can buy them. Um, and actually the capacity for books to transform the world in places where, you know, the publishing industry just can't reach, uh, it just hasn't happened. And, and I've heard a number of stories, largely on the sort of the non-fiction side of, of, of people who have, uh, you know, whose, whose family... Uh, saved for months to buy the one textbook this boy needed to get into university and then had to walk for five miles in order to purchase the book to bring it home to then study to get into university. That sort of, that sort of barrier to, to social change and to enlightenment, to use Peter's word, uh, is something that we're just not as familiar with here, but is, you know, for the vast majority of the world, day-to-day -day life. Uh, and the internet literally revolutionizes people's lives in that respect. In, in countries where actually, you know, they've skipped fixed line mobile, uh, fixed line telephones and fixed line desktop and gone straight to mobile, uh, where actually, you know, e-books are, are going to be a very, very straightforward uh, transformation for them. Um, so I think, I think the potential is very exciting. I think, I think there are, you know, there are real risks, however. I think, um, you know, on the one hand, there's not enough uh, non-English language material on the World Wide Interweb. Interweb? Did I just say that? <laughs> wow. On the information like superhighway. Sarah Hunter of Google, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. I do know what Our I'm doing, world really. world is safe in her hands. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, this, and, and actually, Wikipedia uh, have, have uh, been very ambitious about trying to get more translation and, and more Arabic and more Swahili uh, um, pages on the internet, simply to, because you know, otherwise we have a very westernized view of, of, of information. Uh, but I also think governments are, are, are rather excited about the capacity of the internet to stop uh, information spread and, and are getting increasingly sophisticated about ways to filter and block internet access in their countries. And I think, you know, even a couple of years ago, we were talking just about China. I think increasingly you're talking about uh, repressive regimes much closer to home. And, and I think we should all be much more anxious than maybe we are in our, in our comfortable uh, uh, sort of London lives about, about the, the ways that governments will use the internet to stop the spread of information. Um, I uh, would very much like to open this to the audience for uh, your points and, and questions, given the extraordinary wealth and depth of knowledge on the panel. Um, but before I do so, I just wanted to ask ev everybody across this table just to pitch one thing about writing or publishing that they love that they would particularly recommend to people that people might not know of. And I know that... Polly and I are both big fans of something that Tom Mashler has, has kicked off um, quite recently. So, Polly, would you like to just start off by talking about the yes. book? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm a fan of it, but it does seem quite cumbersome. Um, just that he has bought a bus, and Quentin Blake has decorated it beautifully, and it runs, and it goes to countries where children don't have access to books, and it's stuffed full of books and it arrives in Zambia, and it goes to refugee camps, and it goes to all sorts of places where children have no access to books. And that seems a really wonderful thing, and it, you know, and it is an incredibly heartening thing. But even in this country, one in three children don't own a book. And that just seems extraordinary. But the, what I mean by cumbersome is that maybe the answer is to give Kindles <laughs> to children in Zambia and have access to the downloading 
of books onto those Kindles. Maybe in this country, every child at 8, 9, 10 should be given a Kindle. Maybe that would solve the problem of the library cuts. Maybe, you know, if every child had a Kindle and every library, there was some way of being able to download the books that they need or are interested in, it might solve some of our own literacy problems. Is it, is it the case, Sarah, that technically any child in Britain with a mobile phone can download the canon? Uh, if it's out of copyright, then yes. Uh, obviously, we've got a small issue with things that are in copyright, but no. I, I don't think I'm legally allowed to talk about that. You, you, could give, you could now give every child in school in Britain Dickens, Austen, Eliot, Shakespeare now for free. I, uh, we're getting there. I mean, I think our digitisation of books and the digitisation of all the libraries, I mean, we digitise most of the Bodleian that's out of copyright. Um, we're trying to get there with the other libraries, but it, it, it's, a, it's taking time, put it like that. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm with Polly. I think there, there, are, there are ways to address um, the lack of literacy that are so much more exciting for children than they ever were. I mean, you and I may not feel comfortable about, about interactive books for children, but I think my three-year-old son loves them. Uh, and I'm not sure he would naturally be a reader without them. So I, I think it, there's potential. I mean, I would say, just to sort of build on Polly's idea, I would say retackling orphan works is something that really, you know, could make a really transformative uh, difference to, to the, the, the range of stuff that's available out there. You know, if the British Library thinks sort of 80% plus of, of their content is orphaned, that's a hell of a lot of content that we're just not able to access at the moment unless you walk into the British Library. It doesn't mean that Google has a necessary right to have it. Just because no, 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 I agree. I agree. And, I, and I, that's not what I would say. I would say that, you know, trying to sort of find legal ways to enable lots of people to be able to make this stuff available, I think, would be transformative. Johnny, do you, I don't want to prejudice what you were going to say, but do you want to talk about World Book Night and whether or not that's... Well, it's funny. I was absolutely going to say about World Book but just a point about Polly. Uh, I predict that Kindles will be free soon, anyway. I think that that will be a marketing... Uh, so I don't think that will be such a problem. Um, and also, you can get any app with loads of free books, the whole canon. You just download on free... It's free throughout the whole world, even the developing world. Um, well, if it's an app, I assume so. I what, the know. Kindle, though? The actual yes, or yeah. an Apple, iPad. You could, there's a... Yeah, there, there are lots of free, uh, and the problem is that they're not accurately scanned, so some of them are really frustrating. But anyway, so you've got, I think there will be uh, access to out-of-copyright work, uh, which will be fine. Um, I think that World Book Night was an extraordinary uh, example of what we were all talking about, which is discovery and enthusiasm being the beginning of Just all creativity. Clear, World Book Night was a, happened uh, a month or so ago when publishers got together, incredibly, to give away a million books in what, 25 or 40,000 copies of 25 yes, 40, books? Yes, 40,000 copies. Um, including um, one of David's, um, which has been controversial. I mean, there's, there's, there's argument about whether or not it's been a good thing for the publishing industry, although it's clearly quite a good thing for readers. Yeah, and I, the, the point that really was the starting point of the whole thing about World Book Night was just to be able to say, to get someone, give to someone else a book that they love. And I can't see anything wrong with that. I think there's plenty of uh, room for book sales outside of it. And uh, all the books that were included in that book, uh, in that, in that uh, 25 uh, project, all, all uh, went up in sales. As it happened, it coincided with the worst climate in the bookshops for eight years. So the last six weeks have not been good sales. But I don't attribute any connection between one night of, uh, of a million co copies being given away with that. Um, anyway, the point is, is that the industry as a whole came together in a really quite remarkable way. From, and I can't see any other industry doing that um, outside of 
uh, charity uh, events like Red Nose Day or, or those things which are huge uh, national uh, projects. It was, anyway, I, I think that that was something that, uh, that proved that we're alive and, and kicking. And one last thing, I would just say that the London Book Fair, which is a rights fair, um, last month, 25,000 people went through the doors there, most of whom were international publishers. And that, to me, says that London is still important. Why would they come if and a lot of Americans and a lot of Europeans and a lot of South Americans and, you know, across the world, because we are still a cultural, a, a, a place of cultural importance. And as long as the booksellers and the publishers continue to invest in you, those people will keep coming. However, in five years' time, it may be that there will be 10,000 people coming because we're simply not producing work that is important enough. And we need that. That's why publishing needs to remain intact to a certain degree. Alexandra. Well, I'd like to just touch, actually, on, on literary festivals. Um, and obviously, Peter is the, is the emperor of literary festivals. But just want to talk very briefly about um, one in India that I've been to three times in Jaipur, which I find incredibly exciting because I find India very exciting at the moment. And I think that it must be a, a Britain in the 19th century with the coming of the Industrial Revolution must have been a bit like India is at the moment with this incredible surge of education and activity and people feeling and terrible, desperate poverty, but also um, a feeling that the world is changing and that you can change the world yourself. And... Jaipur has this festival every year, and every event is free. And last year, 4,000 people a day went through that festival, and every single event was completely crammed. And I thought, this is so exciting. You could literally sort of feel the sort of fizz and pop and um, joy that everybody got from, uh, from sitting and listening to authors day after day. And that, for me, is just, it's a great thing. And, it, and Peter started it in that very muddy field in Hay-on-Wai all those years ago, which I remember so vividly. And, and we've, we've come to, a, a, it has become such a huge international phenomenon. And I felt that all the people in those audiences were getting so much from being at that, that festival. David. Um, I, I find the availability of, of, of books wonderful. I mean, the, the notion of a rare book, it seems harder and harder to imagine. Now, there are very few books that you can't find on Amazon quite quickly. I, I suppose the only thing, I feel a real Luddite saying this, but the reason I read um, Martin Chuzzlewit or whatever when I was 12 was because I was bored and there was nothing else to do. And <laughs> my, my children, I, I, my son is five now and he, I, I'm just trying to get him interested in reading and, and he has access to all books all films, pretty much most television, at all times. And when I was that age, you'd wait four years for Some Like It Hot to be on TV, and it would come round, and you'd watch it with a kind of, of reverence. And now when my son is, is approaching the age where he's going to have that, hopefully share that passion for stories, I'm actually rather chilled by the, the choices and the influences and the options he will have. I don't know if he'll have the extended, concentrated, individual time to absorb the books that I read. Um, uh, one of the reasons I stopped reading books on an iPad was because I, it was like reading with the television on. It was, I didn't want to read on the same thing that had Angry Birds on. I, I found it, <laughs> actually found it impossible. And, I, and, and for me, I'm trying to recover the kind of individual concentration that I used to have when I watched an hour of television or a feature film or sat down and read a book for an extended period of time. Because for all of these tremendous developments, I, I actually find it harder and harder 
to find that time and concentration. And, and so I'm simultaneously thrilled and excited by all of these opportunities and also a little, a little um, concerned. Thank you all very much indeed. We've got another 10 minutes, I think, for uh, questions or corrections or just abuse. Um, <laughs> five, bring it on. Can we start with the um, gentleman at the front, then the gentleman at the back? Uh, hi, Nico McDonald. I have two published authors in my family. Unfortunately, my publishing is only non-fiction, which uh, is, seems slightly inferior this, this morning. Um, my question was about uh, books and society, which may be particularly to, to David and Polly. What role does literature and fiction today have in helping us think about the human condition without wanting to be too pretentious, particularly in the kind of strange time we're living in, reflecting on the changes in society and the economy and so on? Is, is this... An, as important a role for literature are we, is the kind of literature we're publishing uh, up to that, that kind of reflection and how does that compare perhaps to other countries? And then on the question... Uh, oh, hang on, that could give us about a week's <laughs> worth of discussion and we've got five minutes. All right, David. I'll leave it at that. Um, I think the most uh, one can hope for as a writer is to have an emotional response. And for me, the, the emotional response I have reading a book supersedes that I have listening to music or watching a movie. You know, I, I, I have vivid memories of the first time I read Great Expectations, for instance, or Tess of the Delvilles, and I think it's very hard to find that somewhere else. Uh, I think um, books also are a vehicle for us to um, examine and discuss our own lives, I think. Uh, the nicest thing anyone says to me about one day is, you know, I recognized myself, I recognized my friends, I, I thought about the decisions I'd made, it made me think about old friends, old lovers, and that is, that is uh, a, a wonderful, uh, that, that's what I was hoping for with that book. So I think to, to get a, a strong, personal, emotional response um, uh, from a reader uh, and to get that level of immersion, I think, is, is, is what, what one would hope for as a writer. Um, the thing we all want, I think, more than anything else for our children is for them to read, and I think it's worth thinking about why that seems so important to us. I mean, we don't want them to listen to music or watch films or play sport with quite the passion that we want them to read. And I think the reason for that is that reading is the only form that is truly creative and that truly creates a feeling of empathy. It is the only form where you can become someone else. And I think that really what we want for our children above all else is that they, are, that they grow up with empathy, and I think empathetic people make a better world. Um, and then in a glib way, I was thinking about this this morning, I read an interview with Jeff Dyer where he said, uh, writing, that um, Jonathan Franzen suffers so that we don't have to. <laughs> there's a, there's an, uh, an obvious truth that, that culture is one of the few areas of, of human existence where progress is irrelevant. Um, and I guess, Alexandra, you're the person to whom one has to pitch the, the, the question, how did the sort of class of 2011 measure up um, to you know, recent generations of superstar writers? And, and also uh, recognizing the fact that much as we need writers to mediate the world, to understand the world, to make us, get to see us afresh, there's a kind of, on average, and this is massive exaggeration and generalization, but there's a sort of 30-year time lag, isn't there? It's almost a generation's time lag before a particular time becomes properly recorded. And this sort of speaks pretty much clearly to, to David's work as well. 
But that's the same with everything, isn't it? It's, it's like history. You know, we are now reading fantastic works of history about post-war Britain. Um, you know, we published David Kiniston's um, history of post-war Britain, and it's, you know, it's going to go up to the 1970s, and the 1970s are now a time of history. For me, it was when I was a young woman. But, you know, it is time of history, and it's the same thing with what we understand about what we're publishing. We none of us know. Every now and again, you publish a book. I remember publishing Donna Tartt's The Little Friend and thinking, this is a book that's going to be read in 100 years' time. But I think that happens to you once or twice. The rest of it, you just don't quite know, do you? <laughs> Uh, it, this, it sifts, sifts up and down in its own way. It's organic, and you have no control over it blissfully. <laughs> okay. But what you do have is you can, nothing goes out of print any longer. Can I take a question from the guy at the back in the plaid shirt and then from the lady just, uh, yeah, with the earrings? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jason, CEO of Chipmunker Publishing, the mental health publisher. Um, just got a question really for um, Johnny and Alexandra and also one for Sarah, it'll be very quick. Um, when, do you, when do you anticipate e-books outselling um, other formats in revenue, not just in numbers, but in revenue, the amount of money coming in? And with Sarah, do you anticipate um, overtaking Amazon um, market share within the next five years through the, um, when you're launching Google e-books? Uh, Johnny? Um, in America, I would, uh, some books are already over 50% e-book to traditional, so that's already happening. Um, I would imagine within the next year we'll see figures of uh, publishers' overall output being the major publishers moving up to 20 to 30, 15 to 25% of their whole entire business will be ebook. Whether it will ever get to 50% is, is down to lots of things. The collapse of the high street uh, in America with borders and uh, here with Waterstones in trouble and borders having gone here and Amazon's uh, increasing uh, monopoly. Uh, monopoly in terms of strength, I mean, I don't mean I'm accusing of anything. Um, in the UK, it's much slower, but it's inevitable. Um, I think uh, it will get to, by the end of this year, around 12 to 15%. But Alexandra may have a view on this, but I, I, I think that everything will change because the revenues of the high street, of the price of a book, of a hardback and a payback, are going to, so, are going to drop so dramatically as they have been doing that it will uh, equalize. At the moment, you look on Amazon, and you look at the top 20 Amazon Kindle bestsellers in fiction, and 13 of them, and I looked at this yesterday, are, um, are under a pound. So that's not a business. That's just self-publishing and whoever's ma managing to market. Um, the books that are at four pounds, you know, there's only five of them. So it's, it's saying to me that we're in a very unstable... What are they? The, what Those do you books mean? that are a pound. Um, they're thrillers, they're vampire novels, they're, so they're, they're people who have access to Kindle forums, fora, and there are things like that. But, you know, the normally priced, what, what people find outrageous and publishing has not managed to co uh, communicate properly is the idea that, uh, to use David's example, you could buy David uh, one day on Amazon and it'll be £3.98 and it'll be delivered in your, book sh in your house the next day for free. But at the same note, you can press a button on Kindle and have it downloaded on your, on your Kindle in seconds, and that will cost you £4.98 or something. Uh, yes, it's a pound more. That's because of VAT, and there are reasons why it's higher. But the, the rationale within the consumer is that's madness. Uh, a book I can see. I can see why it costs a bit more money. There's print. There's, there's, there's distribution. And that is a huge 
uh, psychological leap for readers, and uh, that's the challenge for the future. Do you really want to talk about this, or can we move on? Because I think Johnny's covered. Is that time? Yeah. Uh, next question. Hi, um, my name is Ilja Talabi, and uh, my background's in journalism, but I'm also a CV consultant and trainer, and I've just written my first book on the subject. And um, Polly and Alexandra, both of you mentioned that your, your background was you had no qualifications before getting into the industry. And I was just wondering if you think that the industry has changed so much so that now it's only those with qualifications who have access to the publishing industry in terms of whether it's being published as an author or accessing an agent like yourself or anything like that. You could be looking at the least qualified, academically qualified group of people you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Who are simultaneously the most massively successful people. I'll have you know I got an Henri D. Lit from that tech with David Gilmore. <laughs> I'm doctor. How, come on, has, has the industry changed? Doctor Pringle. It's an advantage not having a, a, actually not being educated as a writer because so many readers are not educated and I think it gives you a different slant on the world and I think it gives you, a, you know, you haven't been so trained in your way of thinking. So I'm all for iconoclasm. And no agent or publisher is going to find out, be in the slightest bit interested in the educational history no. of an author. It's just the book. That's the only thing that matters. Nor indeed are they likely to read but the CVs of anybody who applies to them for jobs. But job. in sorry. I don't just mean in terms of your academic education, but in yeah. terms of, I guess, also your connections, because I know quite a lot of people who have written books, but they've gone down a self-publishing route because they just don't know how to get to you guys, you know? So it's that whole, how do you, do you get do you access know, if you don't have the right connections? Can I just answer that one? Because uh, you will all give fulsome answers. The bottom line is, if you've written something wonderful, he will find it within weeks. <laughs> And the, the, the terrible, and none of them can say this, I can say this quite clearly, 80% of what is written is not terribly good. Even a fairly large number towards 80% of what is published isn't terribly good, but the stuff that is good is so good that it pulls everything else along. So if you're brilliant and if your book is terrific and if your ideas and your writing is wonderful, you can bet your ass that Johnny Geller will make money out of it. Um, LAUGHTER Right, uh, can I have a question here? Please? I'm a servant to the text. I'd just like to clarify that. <laughs> uh, sorry, this isn't a question. Sorry, I meant to say we'll bring it to a wider public and give it life and disseminate it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Louise Allen-Jones. I'm a literary scout, and uh, my clients are all foreign publishers, and um, I scout for a television company in the UK called Tiger Aspect. And I just want to pick up on what you've said about what you need in qualification terms. I am... I'm a member of that club of minimal qualifications. I employ um, three and a half people in my tiny little company. Every single one of them has at least one first-class honours degree. One person I hired had two. Um, we are looking at a complete change in the way that you do get into the industry. I got in from secretarial college. I applied as a a shorthand typist stroke secretary to a publicity manager. This was about 30 years ago. Um, I had A-levels, and that was it. Um, these days, unless you're connected, as you say, to um, someone who can give you work experience, as you're, as a, as, let's say as a graduate, you're looking to get into publishing, as a graduate, you will work for free for several months, if not years, for a publisher, an agent, or even a scout, um, 
Um, although I do pay a bit, actually, because I can't bear the idea of this exploitation. And that is probably the only way you're going to get in, with a degree and with connections. Okay, next point, please. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, can you just give it to Louise Chum? Hi, I'm Louise Chan. I'm from Psychologies magazine. I just wanted to ask um, maybe Alexandra and Polly um, whether you feel that reviews in magazines and newspapers are important anymore, given that you know the internet is covered with people responding to what they think, you know, on Amazon and things like that. Yeah, would you like to tell the editor of Psychologies magazine <laughs> how important? <laughs> Alexandra. <laughs> we have two pages of, of uh, reviews every month, but I'm just curious to know how important it is anymore if everybody is, is out there saying what they think. Is it important to have... I think so, and it's like uh, publishers are important because you need people to guide taste, and, and, and just to have a flood of everybody's opinions isn't necessarily helpful. And it's just as book, bookshop promotions uh, are important and these book clubs and so on because people want a bit of guidance, and that's what reviews do, and, and we need them. And sadly, there are I mean, literary pages are cut down and there are fewer reviews, there's less review space. You can't tell often whether it directly affects a book. Some you get immediate hit on Amazon from a huge review, and some you don't. Um, we don't know. That's part of the strange alchemy of it. But yes, we need them desperately. Well, I have OCD when it comes to my book and my Amazon ranking. And, <laughs> and so whenever I've had a good review, I've been on Amazon to see that ranking change. And I'm not sure that a good review actually does sell your book. I think it's a combination of things. And the, I put this, I'm always haunted by a few years ago, it's, this is not a book-related thing, I'll do it very quickly. I read in The Guardian a, 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 a review of an art show that was going to be one day only in Cambridge. They were going to project this wonderful thing over the front of the Guildhall. And it sounded so great that I travelled from Sussex to Cambridge to see this wonderful happening. And my husband and I were the only people there. <laughs> You should have just said he was going to be there and you were going to be well, there. Well, no, I mean, that, I, mean I kind of thought he counted for 100 people. So. <laughs> Can I just add sort of one thing to that? Because uh, this is interesting in terms of, of what I do, in terms of dealing with large numbers of people who are readers who want to meet writers. And I think this is also true, funnily, specifically of, of David's million-selling book, One Day, is that no amount of slick publicity, no amount of vastly expensive marketing, no amount of reviews in newspapers is anything like as effective as what, what well, book night sought to do and what all of the rest of us do all the time, is somebody saying, I love this, can I give it you? The, the, word of mouth, and you know, if you can fake that, you can fake anything, word of mouth is the only thing that will get something to be it's, massive. It's yeah. the only thing, but you have to kick it off somehow. Yeah. And you know, there are not that many <laughs> platforms. But there are some where you've had no kick-off. One very signal one was Elizabeth Gilbert's um, Eat, Pray, Love, where nobody wanted to review it, nobody wanted to interview her. She came over, and the press turned their back on her, the bookshops turned her back on her. Four years later, it sold a million copies, and that was entirely word of mouth. And then, of course, Julia Roberts helped fit after that. You can also say the public is sometimes wrong. Uh, we also ought to say, actually... In, it's a fantastic book. In, in, in the presence of Mark Bell, we ought to also say that in this country, uh, as in no other country on the planet, and we are the, our publishing industry is the envy of every other... We've got the BBC, 
and specifically Radio 4, which is the single biggest arbiter and champion of, of the publishing industry anywhere. Um, and we should be so, so dear lucky. Book of the week and book of bedtime don't necessarily sell copies. Only some books do. No, but that. they sometimes mediate... I mean, sometimes actually hearing something read can be, for many people, as, as wonderful as, as reading. Um, we've got time for a few more. Can we have uh, Lady right at the front, please? And then um, uh, there. Hello, my name's Susan Richards, and um, I write books about Russia. But what I want to talk about today is that 20 years ago, uh, Roger and I, with the help of Stephen Williams, Tim Waterston, and various others, launched Book Aid, which sent more than a million books, to Russia. And I wanted to refer to the conversation you were having about um, the resonance of books in the lives of people beyond um, the Western world as narrowly conceived. Now, you know, the, the Kindle, uh, uh, the downloading revolution is not going to hit the, the, the world beyond that shortly because people don't have the money for downloads and so on. And um, I think we should be doing more book aids because the, the resonance of book aid is something that has gone on and on. It was a landing of a whole missing culture, culture that had been missing for 73 years. And it landed in public libraries all over Russia and its neighbors. And the, the resonance has gone on with, um, with, with the Goethe Institute in the Americans and the Australians, everybody imitating book aid they suddenly realized that it all started simply with this encounter between individuals and books. Let's do it again. Uh, yeah, question there, please. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Anna Goswell. I'm a freelance copywriter. Um, I just want to ask about the influence of schools, really, in reading. All of you, I think, talked about individual readers or influencing, um, being influenced by individuals in your family or whoever, and just talk about schools. Now, I am an ex-teacher. It was, it was years ago, so I, and, and I hate the fact that schools are often held up as the evil of everything in society, so I'm not saying that schools should suddenly be there responsible. There are no Conservative cabinet members on the panel. <laughs> Marvellous. Um, but I remember as a student... Um, reading in Inspector Calls and feeling horrified about the behaviour of the family to this, to this poor girl, then teaching it and the students saying, well, of course, they behaved perfectly rationally. She was, she was awful. So the fact that these, these books are um, perhaps a place in time and our schools keeping up with the changes of society and the fact that reading in schools is reading, analysing, producing work from it as opposed to the enjoyment. So it's just to get an opinion about schools and reading, really. David. Um, you know, I, 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 I wish I could... Sometimes it comes up, you know, people say, you, did you have a particular inspirational teacher? And in English, and English, I, I didn't. I think I, English was, unfortunately, quite badly taught in my school. Everything was badly taught, actually. It wasn't very, I, I have no nostalgia for it at all. I mean, I, I, for me, it was... And that's not a generalisation at all, because uh, 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 I know many people instilled with a great love of, of literature and drama through their schools. I think probably I was just unlucky, and I felt, in terms of reading and enjoying literature, I think I was pretty much um, self-taught. There was a kind of 
slightly, uh, especially just coming up to O level, kind of resentment of having to read Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and that kind of thing. So, so I, I, I'm, I, I think absolutely schools have the primary role to play. And my, my, my own kids are, uh, are enthused and bring books home from school. I have access to the books and libraries in much the same way I did. I, I suppose, speaking entirely personally, I, for me, it was a solitary pleasure, something I discovered by myself. That's all I can really say, say about it. So, yeah, fun enough, I, I'm more often than not talking about technology in schools, and, and there I'm sort of often uh, the person who's, you know, criticising the majority of schools. I mean, there are some schools that are amazing with technology, but the vast majority are not. And so the flip side of that is they're, they're rather good at doing what they traditionally do, which is teaching reading. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, quite, ha they're quite comfortable in that space. That's what they've always done. Um, and I certainly think, yes, from a sort of personal experience, you know, the love of books comes from a, a, a solitary uh, 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 encounter, but actually a, a teacher giving you the confidence to believe that what you read and your interpretation of it is a valid one. I think is something that only a teacher could do, particularly for children who don't have parents who are you know, great literary, you know, sort of confident uh, readers. I think having a teacher say, no, your opinion on this is valid and, and, and what you say about this counts, I think is only something only a school can do. A question from the guy right up the back. This is more of a comment than a question. I'm Mihir Bose. I just want to take up the point that Alexander made about India um, and the Western tradition. Though India has been hugely influenced by the West, it's actually part of the non-Western tradition and has moved literally from a storytelling tradition to the web, which has made an enormous impact in India. And I think the problem there is that the book-buying public will not increase, though actually, curiously, newspapers are being read more and the largest selling newspaper in the world is the paper I grew up with as a child in Bombay, the Times of India, which might be odd to say, but there, there it is. It's the largest selling newspaper in the world. But book buying isn't. So I think it's Google that will benefit. I don't know what their plans are um, um, for, for that market particularly. But that, they, this is a market that has gone literally in the last 20 years. And a market of 400 million people who, who read English, um, uh, literally from uh, li non-literacy, to literacy through the, through the web. So I think they will miss out on the book-buying tradition of the West. Uh, we've got time for two more points. Uh, one from right at the back and one from right at the front. Actually, we'll do three. Thank you. Thank you for all your input and insights, everyone. Um, I'm Emma Bondle, a fellow bookworm. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the language of the process of publishing, the, the language of books as we know them. Um, bookworm, for example, a very earthy, eating, visceral word that comes with devouring literature. Um, the smell of a book as you turn the pages, all these things that are part of the artifact of the three-dimensional text um, are shifting online. But interestingly, I've noticed that the, the, the simulation online is exactly the same. It's to flick the page and turn it over. And I wonder if in time, or indeed if Google's looking into any ways in which the old style of a rolling manuscript may re-emerge, or that text presented in a completely different way on the web, because you can, maybe by spider moving across, something very creative and different, rather than matching and copying what we currently understand as the physical process of turning the page between two covers. I wondered if any of those thinking about the process of the new way of publishing is going on behind the scenes in the techie world. <laughs> yes, you. it absolutely is. And I, and I think what you're referring to is, goes back to one of my earlier points about the, the emotional connection we have with books, which is, I, I think, unlike any other 
content. I mean, I take your point about music has an emotional connection with you, but I think books sort of supersede that personally. Um, and I think, therefore, that the language has developed through that emotional connection. Um, there is lots of experiments happening about how you make the reading online experience a, a different one, whether it be to sort of uh, reflect your offline experience with the flicking, or whether it be through doing something completely different. There's an experiment with um, the New York Times um, called Living, uh, Living Story, I think it is, what we're doing, where um, people can, you, the, the, the paper and other uh, writers can update a story as it happens all in one place. So you don't get sort of article published about, you know, uh, Bin Laden dying and then another article. You have a constant story rolling. And um, yeah. which, you know... Mr. Panetta lying on three different occasions. About for example. Um, exactly. A, a more interesting story as a result. Um, uh, but, but also there are, there are experiments where actually, you know, the flicking actually makes people stay on the page longer. And therefore, if you want to monetize the content, actually, that, that's a key thing for advertisers. How long do people stay on the page? So, so there, are, there, is a sort of, there are two things. What's the user experience and what's the thing that actually makes it more monetizable that, that I think a lot of companies like us are, are doing experiments around? How do you make things more monetizable, Johnny? Well, it's actually, I just wanted to answer the question. There is a format coming out next month that's copied from Holland that Hodder, I think, is exclusively doing for 20 of their authors, which is called a flipback. And that's the, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's the size of a hand, and it's from a Bible publisher. You know, those kind of very uh, wafer-thin papers that, that used to get in old Bibles, and, and basically you can now have it in your pocket. And uh, it's been quite a phenomenon in Holland. They've sold uh, over, a, I think, 12 million of these. Um, so they're introducing it here. Now, it'll probably be stuck in the merchandising sections of Waterstones in the first next few months. But you should have a look at them, because I don't know whether it'll work, but it's a very different way of, of reading. And it's literally, uh, the, the reason why it's a special Bible publisher is the spine stays open wherever you are in the, the book, however long it is. Um, and the only other thing that I absolutely detest about new formats is uh, on uh, Kindle, it's, it's on the iPad anyway, they have a voice uh, text to speech. I don't know if anyone's ever used this. But it means that if you're reading a novel or a book or anything, uh, you can press text-to-speech, and it will read like Stephen Hawking, the book yeah. you're reading. My children and do it to me It's absolute terror. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> apart from torturing the author, it really is torture. And, uh, it's, great, it's great for people who can't read, who can't see. I, I mean, don't... It's good for the no, I mean, it'll be fine. There are audiobooks re read professionally, and why they can't link to those voices so that you could then take your book and log it and while you're driving and continue the experience. But to have... I'm sorry... John LeCarry reduced to, it is my latest time to... <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just an insult. Anyway, that's fine. Um, flip books will be uh, given out at the Hay Festival, should any of you be able to come. Uh, reason enough, I feel, to come. Uh, I've got time for two more. Yes. Uh, Janice Warman and um, writer and journalist. I've got a book coming out next year with, um, with Walker Books and a couple more in the pipeline. But uh, my point is a cheerful one, I hope. I had two dyslexic children who are now 21 and 19. We faced, you know, Harry Potter. We used to fight over who read that to them, obviously. They had, you know, tapes then, CDs, etc. My son spent a lot of time listening to Radio 4. He reckoned he was educated by Radio 4. He used to listen to Lines Bed Night and listen to, to that. Um, they are both now complete bookworms. Obviously, eventually, they overcame the difficulty of actually reading. Um, and as a result, my son could probably still quote you quotes, uh, chunks of the real Jungle Book as opposed to the Disney one because they, they have great memories. And they are both very much in their own way into, into reading. My son, when he's broke, will log onto Project Gutenberg and download books and read them when he can afford he will buy. My, my daughter has now found 
all the books in our house that she loves, all the classic books, lined them all up in a shelf and is working her way through those. So in a way, I think they both, they both relate in their own way to, to literature um, and perhaps in two slightly different ways, but perhaps that is a, um, a positive way to look at it. The children don't necessarily just want to do, you know, PlayStation and stuff like that. So there you go. Thank you very much indeed. Um, sorry, uh, take a question from Mark Bell quickly, just behind you, guy in the blue. Hi there. I just wanted to chip in, actually, uh, with a, uh, a thought about World Book Night, which I think uh, relates to you and what you've done so brilliantly, Peter, which is... Um, sorry, I didn't hear that. What, I'll say it all again. I'll say it again numerous times, like we all have, um, uh, and we'll continue to do. Um, there, is a, there is something brilliant about people who love books coming together in a place, in a field in Wales uh, or wherever, um, to celebrate you know, their shared love of reading. I think what World Book Night managed to do was get to people who wouldn't normally think of going to a literary festival. And I think people who suddenly had a book pressed on them, who weren't expecting it, who were you know, on their way home, uh, maybe didn't have very many books on their shelf, and who were suddenly given the opportunity to um, have that intense experience with a book was something very special. And we got a lot of feedback from people. Um, from, from viewers um, and readers, uh, subsequent readers of the post-World Book Night, who said this was something really very special. And I think the, the idea of the, the book community coming together is wonderful, but if the edges of that book community could be made more porous, that would be a good thing for everyone, I think. Yeah, and the last uh, point here from the lady in the stripes. Exactly what he said. You, you do need... the. So much for World Book Night because it's given me the most joyous reading experience and I am a book person. I did read English at university but it's been a long time since I've had a structured list that has pushed me to read things that I might not want to read or think I'm interested in reading. I loved one day but I also had the most amazing experience of um, being just at the end of um, The Reluctant Fundamentalist last week in New York when I put the book down, switched CNN on, and saw the wow. news about Bin Laden, and it was just talking about moments that change your life. I, I thought, wow, this, and that book is now going <laughs> to take pride of place on my shelves. I don't want a Kindle version of it. I'm very pleased I've got the paperback version. So thank you. Thank you very much for that point. Um, I do need to quickly thank Julia for having us and also um, salute this lovely panel of um, extraordinary people. David Nichols, Alexandra Pringle, Sarah Hunter, Polly Sampson, and Johnny Geller. Thank you very much indeed.